Welcome to another inspirational message from Dave Koop, Senior Pastor of Coastal Church in Vancouver, Canada. So today we're going to talk about how to manage our choices, and we're going to have a grid, some tests to run our choices through. If we take time to think about the choices before we make them, prepare for them, we can make great choices that will lead us to the destiny, the purpose that God has for our life. So let's get started. Your life will be determined how you manage your choices. Choose your thoughts, for they become words. Choose your words, for they become actions. Choose your actions, for they become habits. Choose your habits, for they become character. Choose your character, for it becomes your destiny. Choice, not chance, determines your destiny. We live in a lottery world. People want to win the lottery. They want to win the big one. And uh, I'm going to find my way there the easy way. Uh, Our destiny, the purpose we have in our life, the purpose-driven life, if you like, is determined by the choices that we make. So let's talk about Esther as we get into this. Esther chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, go there. Esther has to make a big choice in her life. We can learn something from Esther about choices we have to make. And to give you a little background, we're going to be in Esther 4. So if you want to open your Bibles, go to Esther chapter 4. If you have time this week, read the book of Esther and go through it. If you've never read it before, it's an amazing story. If you've read it before, go back and refresh yourself. It's a great story of a woman who makes a huge choice that affects not only her, but her nation. In chapter 1, we got a story about a king. Uh, his name's Xerxes, at least most believe it's Xerxes. We, we pick up a Jewish name in the account of Esther, but most believe it's King Xerxes. And it's about 400 and some B.C., And he rules the world from India to Ethiopia. So he's ruling a big part of the world, powerful king. He's throwing a big party. Uh, We know from history, we don't pick it up in the story of Esther, but we know from history, shortly after this, he goes out to conquer Greece, and he fails, comes back defeated. But at this point, he's got everybody together, big celebration. He's got a big battle that's ahead of him. And during this battle, or during this preparation and this celebration he has, he gets... uh, pretty drunk. He has a long party, gets drunk, and, and in that moment, he asks for his wife, Queen Vashti, to come out, and he'd like her to dance for him and the rest of his leaders. Queen refuses to do that, which goes against the law of the land, and the king's got to do something with this. So he banishes her. He doesn't execute her. He banishes her. He wants it to be a living memory for the people that you don't do that. You don't second-guess the king, even if it's not the right thing to do. And he sends that strong message. Esther appears in the story a little while later because the assistants to the king say, you need a wife. And so they decide to put on the Persian beauty pageant. And uh, you you don't really sign up for this thing. They just come knocking on your door if you're a beautiful lady. And they say, you're going to join the pageant. And so they knock on Esther's door. She's a beautiful Jewish lady. And her Greek name is Esther. It's not her her Jewish name, it's different, but she's going by that name. She's actually kind of keeping her identity a secret by the advice of her uncle Mordecai. Her parents aren't alive. She's been raised by her uncle, and she's picked to, to be one of the ladies. The historian Josephus tells us there was 400 ladies. 
That's a lot of ladies to choose from, and the king's going to pick his one. Now, that's kind of the, the bad news. The good news is that she gets one year of incredible spa treatment. Ladies, can you imagine you have one year free spa treatment? All the pedicures, all the manicures, all the cures you want, all the massages and all the oils and perfumes. I mean, you get one year. She's got seven assistants. Can you imagine? Seven people waiting on her. She's got her own private quarters. She gets promoted. She's actually given the nicest quarters that there is, and she's assigned one of the king's eunuchs to take care of her. So she's really being pampered for an entire year. She's taught the court etiquette, how to conduct herself with royalty. She's really prepared for this night that she spends with the king. And as the story goes, she's chosen. She wins the beauty pageant. She's chosen to be that. The whole time she's keeping her, her identity really a secret. She's not telling other people that she's Jewish. These were Jews taken captive from Jerusalem, brought into Persia, to Babylon. And so she's keeping that kind of under the wraps, under the advice of her uncle Mordecai. Mordecai, he's not going to worship anybody but God. There's a character in the story by the name of Haman, and Haman, he's a bad dude, Haman gets upset because Mordecai won't bow when he goes by. And so he checks out, he finds out Mordecai's a Jew, and so this really ticks him off. So he goes to the king, and he says to the king, he says, king, there's some people that aren't obeying you, there's some people that could cause civil unrest, and it's this nation, and I think we need to get rid of them. And the king says, okay. And Haman says, I'm going to give you a lot of money if you do this. He says, well, that'd be good for the, for the treasury. So he signs off on this. He doesn't realize what he's doing. He signed the death certificate for his wife. So the story builds to really chapter four, where Mordecai comes to him. I'm missing some of the details, but you can read it later on. I want to get to this point. Mordecai comes up to his daughter, communicates to it, not his daughter, his niece. He says, you have to do something. You have a choice to make here. And if you don't do something, God's going to find somebody else. But you have a choice you have to make. You need to go before the king and intercede on behalf of your people. And she's like, man, I haven't been called by the king for 30 days. If you walk into his court and you're not called, you're you're executed unless he raises a golden scepter and says you are allowed to speak. This is a very, very difficult place that I've been put into. Have you ever been caught between a rock and a hard place? Like, you really don't have a choice. You have to make a decision. This is Esther. She's in an incredibly challenging place. Her decision that she has to make, she's wrestling with it. She's she's battling fear. And you could be at a place this morning where you have to make a critical decision. Maybe it's in a relationship, and you're thinking, I need to end this relationship. Or maybe it's somebody that... You have working for you, I need to let that person go. Or maybe it's a financial decision and I have got to make a decision this week about it. And whatever it might be, but you're in a place, I have got to make a big decision in my life. There's a choice that has to be made. Well, Esther's at a place where she has to make a really challenging choice. And we pick up the story in Esther chapter 4, and I'll read from verse 13. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Just because you're chosen queen, if he's decreed this, even though you're a queen, under that law, you too will die. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Oftentimes, we're placed in a position where we have to make a critical decision, a choice. But God has 
prepared it. He has set it up. And he's counting on us to make quality choices that would lead not only for our destiny, but for the destiny of others. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. She's making a choice here. Listen carefully to the choice that she makes. She's a gutsy lady. She says, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will, I will go. This is her choice. I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Gutsy lady. What a choice she made. What can we learn from the choice that Esther made? Talk about managing our choices. Number one, you have the power and the privilege of choice. If you're filling the blanks, the words are power and privilege. We are created in God's image. The animal kingdom does not have the power to make a choice. The angels don't have the power to make a choice and the privilege of choice. We have the privilege and the power of making choices. We're created in his image. And it is indeed a gift. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, God says, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Then he says, therefore, you choose. He doesn't say, I've set before you life and death. I'll choose for you. He says, you choose. So right now, wherever you are, you have the privilege of making a choice. Would you look at your neighbor and just say, you get to choose. You have power. You have privilege. You get to choose. So we can learn that from her. She had the privilege of choosing. She had the privilege of making this choice, the power to make a choice. Number two, what can we learn from Esther? With every choice, there's an element of risk involved. Was there a risk involved in her choice? You bet there was a risk. She was risking her life in this choice. And some of the biggest decisions we make in our life have a high degree of risk. This is why it's so important that we're led forth by peace. And the choices we make, we want to stop, we want to check with God. God, do I have your peace before I make this choice? Inside of you is a compass. Inside of us is a guiding system, if you like. And if you have the peace, the Bible says, be led forth by the peace of the Holy Spirit. As many are led by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has been sent to guide us. This is why Jesus, one of the reasons he sent the Holy Spirit was to guide us in the choices that we make. Is there risk involved? Sure there is. But that risk is eliminated when we know and we trust that God is in this decision. I'm being led forth by peace. Number three, what can we learn from Esther? The difficulty of the choice lies with its consequences. The greater the consequence in the decision, the tougher the choice is to make. Consequences were great, but she makes a choice. And our decisions that we make in life today, the weight of them will depend on how we make that choice. The consequence, we have to stop and think about it. It's not a big decision, a lot of, lot of consequence if I choose between the Levi jeans or between the Lee jeans or between the Levi jeans and Tommy Hilfiger jeans. I don't know. There's not a lot of consequence to it. But the decision that she's making here, big consequences. Number four, what can we learn from Esther? The sooner you make the right choice, the better. Indecision is the mark of a fearful mind. Esther was afraid. She could, she was a, she could have, I'm sure she battled fear in this choice. Again, faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is in the midst of that tension, I choose to trust God. And she trusted God in the midst of what was going on. Sometimes we're having to make choices and we're saying, well, if I make that choice, uh, and we shrink back from doing the right thing because oh, I could be embarrassed, I could be rejected, what if I fail? She battled all through that, yet she chose to do the right thing. Number five, what can we learn from her? To not choose is to lose your choice. It's kind of a paradox, but actually not making a choice is a choice. And her uncle says to her, Esther, if you don't choose, deliverance will come from somebody else. We are not indispensable. 
Sometimes you think, well, you know, if they don't have me, they'd have nobody. But you know what? Really, God will find another way. And there's these windows of opportunity that we have in our life. And there was this window of opportunity for her life where she could absolutely stand up and make a difference for her and for her nation. And there are critical times in our life where God will give us these opportunities to make a choice to make a difference for others. Today, this week, this month, we'll be given opportunities to make a choice to make a difference for other people. It may be as simple as sponsoring somebody to go on a missions trip. Maybe as simple as giving into another organization. Maybe a simple thing, but we have the privilege and the power of making choices in these windows of opportunity that will make a difference for others. And he said to her in uh, Esther 4.14, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. You have this moment to make a choice. Then one, number six, what else can we learn from Esther? The chosen few are the few who have chosen. Why is Esther so remembered? Because she made a choice. And you think back sometimes, or you think of other people, say, why, why is that person there? Why are they in that position? Or why are they experiencing that? Or why is their marriage like that? And my marriage is like this? Or why are they dating somebody? And I'm not dating somebody. Why is that happening? Again, where we are is a reflection of the choices that we've made. Instead of going into self-pity and say, oh, it just happens to them, it never happens to me, maybe you have to back it up a bit and say, what choices did they make that got them to that place? And be a student of choices that people are making that bring them to that place. The few that are chosen have ones that have made choices. So it's important to reflect on the choices that we make in life. Choice, again, not chance, leads us to our destiny. We live in a world, again, that likes to have kind of this lottery mentality. I just want to win the big one, and then it's all going to be okay. No, it's a lot of little choices throughout life that lead us to the purpose that God has for our lives. Number seven, what can we learn from Esther? Good choices are not made. Good choices are prepared. The big choices in our life come because we are prepared prior to the opportunity that is, is presented in front of us. She has an opportunity to make a difference for her nation. But I love Esther and what she does. Esther says to her, her, her uncle and to the others that are out there, she says, pray for me and fast for me because I'm going to go do this. That tells me something about Esther. Esther was teachable. Somewhere she learned about prayer and fasting. This was not the first time she had fasted. This was not the first time this woman had prayed. She had been praying and fasting some other time in her life. And she was prepared to make that decision. Church, I want to tell you this morning, one of the greatest things that you have as a believer is the power of prayer and fasting. When you're caught between a rock and a hard place, when you have to make a choice, what do I do? This is an incredibly hard decision. It might not be hard for somebody else, but this is hard for me. Do I live in that country or do I live in this country? Do I take that job or do I take this job? Do I marry this person? Do I not marry this person? Others may not think it's hard, but for me, this is a really hard, hard decision. You can prepare yourself for hard decisions. How do I do that? One of the greatest ways to do it is by prayer and fasting. Why? Why is fasting so powerful? Fasting shuts down all the other desires of your flesh and helps you to focus on what God's saying for you to do. Sometimes there's so much noise, so much confusion. It's hard to see, hard to feel, hard to understand what the peace of God is. One of the greatest things we can do in those moments, prepare ourselves by prayer and fasting. It puts you in a position of strength, never weakness. And it's an ace you can play. And nobody has to know. 
You can do it incognito. You can do it such a way that nobody knows, but you're praying and you're fasting about that decision. Esther does it. What a strength. What a position of preparedness to make difficult choices. When you're praying and you're fasting, it's like the clouds lift, like the clutter disappears, and you can clearly see the choice that you have to make. So I don't know much about prayer and fasting. I've never done that. You know what? That's that's a great question. If you're there, you, you say, I'm not sure about that. We have some books in the bookstore, or you can, there's other books that we could recommend. We've got teaching that we've done on in the past, but really, church, this is something, this is your, this is your ace. This is your, this is your, one of your greatest weapons that you hold is the ability to pray and fast to make the right decisions. You know what God said in Isaiah? He said, I will go ahead of you. I will make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze. I'll cut through the iron bars. I'll grant you the treasure in secret places in order you might notice. I, the Lord God of Israel, who's called you by your name. God's called you. He has treasure for you, abundant life. But we can miss it in a life. Even though we're saved, we're believers, we love God, we follow him, we can miss what he has for us by making wrong choices in life. God wants to guide us, lead us into the paths of righteousness. What? For his namesake. How do we do that? Say, God, prepare me for the choices I have to make in life. Okay, how can we do that? Here's five tests you can run. Your decisions through. It's kind of a grid. You can run them through this. Uh, I didn't come up with this. Rick Warren did. And I uh, can't improve on it, so I'm just going to take it and use it. So here we go. Uh, number one, the ideal test. Is it in harmony with God's word? Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. That means the decisions that I'm making in life, I take his word and say, does his word agree with this decision? If it does, that's the path that I'm taking. It lights my path. It shows me the direction, the choices I have to make in life. What is the basis for the choices I make in life? What is my set of standards? What is my moral mm, background? Where do I draw from to make the choices in life? First of all, number one, does this line up with God's word? In his book, Conrad Hilton writes about when he was building hotels during the Great Depression. You've heard about Conrad Hotels. You've heard about the Hilton Hotels around the world. He was an amazing builder of hotels. And during the season that he was buying the Astoria, uh, Waldorf Astoria in New York, that wonderful hotel downtown New York, classic hotel. And he wanted to buy this amazing hotel. And he writes about how every morning he would go to the church and pray. And he'd be saying, God, give me wisdom in the choices I make. I'm under incredible financial pressure. The deal's coming together with a lot of difficulty. I need wisdom, so many choices to make. What did this guy do? What did this builder of, ho- of this hotel empire, what did he do? He first went and prayed. He said, I went to the church to pray. Oh, he could have prayed anywhere, but he said, I'm going to go to the church to pray. He got it. Not everybody gets us, but there is, there's something about buildings. Buildings speak. I know the church isn't the building. The church isn't this building. The church is us, but there's a theology around a building. Buildings speak. This building speaks in this city. It's on the anchor block. It's under the skyline's apex. It's, there's a cross that sits on the outside. And, and 24-7, this building's pulsating. 
sending a message. God is alive in the heart of the city, in the heart of Vancouver. People are worshiping him. They're hungry for God. Despite whatever you say, there's a hunger for God in the heart of the city. When there's a lineup for people to come through, when people on a Sunday morning are clogging the streets around Georgia and Alberni and Butte and Thurlow, and there's kids going this way and youth going that way and cars parking, it's sending a message that God's alive. There's a hunger for spiritual things in the city. There's a theology around buildings, and he got that as a builder of buildings. He understood there's something about buildings. He said, so in the morning, I'd go and pray in the church. I said, well, when is the church open here for prayer? Saturdays, we invite you. Come pray in this place that's been set aside. It's a sanctuary for that reason. Ducks Unlimited have sanctuaries for ducks, and this is a sanctuary for us ducks. This is a sanctuary for us to come and to pray. When we dedicated the building a number of years ago, 2002, the week prior to our dedication, it's never happened before, before that hadn't happened, it's never happened since, but we were getting ready to dedicate the building, and I got a phone call from a movie company, big movie being shot, and they wanted to use the building as a jail for a movie that they were shooting. Like, Yeah. I chuckled too, not out loud, but I was chuckling. They came in and, you know, I said, okay, I'll meet with you. They came down and they toured and yeah, yeah, they were going to make, that was going to, that side was going to be the jail and they had this a big name movie star. If I told you the names, you'd recognize all the names and they wanted to use the building for this. They said, you know, this would be great for your church. You're going to be seeing the movie and all this and that. And they said, here's what we're going to pay you. It was a lot of money and we could use the money. Uh, we could put it to good use. And uh, I said, okay, I'll get back to you. And I talked to Cheryl about it and some of the others. And I was just like, ugh, no peace. No peace at all. So I said, no, we're going to pass. You don't understand. You got this big name here, and so-and-so's going to be here, and they're going to be in your building. It's like, I really don't care who's going to be here. <laughs> I'm fine. We're, we're okay. No, we'll pass. And then next day, another one. We had seven in a week. It was just like one right after the other. It was, it, was, it was unusual. And I said, God, what's going on? And he said, it's a test. Make a decision. Set this building aside for my glory. And you will have all your needs met. Just put me first. Set it aside. There's lots of places to rent. They have lots of places to use in the projects they're doing. But that, set this aside for my people. A place to gather. And so God's been good to his word ever since. Set aside. There's something about a building. I know I'm off track a bit. But there is choices involved to set this aside for his use, for his glory. Uh, number, number one. Are we still only on number one? Man, God help the preacher. Number two. Well, number one was the, the, the God's word test. Okay, number two is the integrity test. Choices we make, we've got to ask ourselves, would I want everyone to know? Would I want this on the paper on a Sunday or on a Monday or any day of the week? Would I want it known? And in today's world, it can go public really quick. So would I want everyone to know? Proverbs 10.19 or 10.9 says, The man of integrity walks securely. Why is he secure? Because he's got nothing to hide. But he, is crooked, he takes crooked paths, will be found out. Guess what? Bad choices lead to secrets. James 4, 17, knowing what is right to do and then not doing it is sin. If you're worried 
What's going to happen when others find out about the choice I make? It's probably not a good choice. Romans 14, 14, if someone believes something is wrong, then he shouldn't do it because for him it is wrong. Sometimes what's wrong for one person may not be wrong for the other person. It's not a right or wrong decision as much as it's a good versus best decision. Is it the right thing for me to be doing? Does it violate my conscience to do this? There was a guy who made the news this past week from Arizona. Maybe you heard the story. I caught it on, on Google News and then watched it in a couple other places. This guy made a choice, tough choice, homeless, broke, his bank account's in the red, and he finds a backpack with $3,300 in it. He's homeless and a computer. He's got a choice to make. Amazing story. And the impact, he had to run his choice through the integrity test. And he ran it through that test. And here's what happened to him. I'm going to let the newscast tell you the rest of the story. Imagine you find a backpack left on a curb and in it, cash, $3,300. What would you do? Dave Talley had to think about that a lot. I can't even describe what was going through my head. It was just, you know, how could somebody leave something like this behind him? He needed the money badly. Dave Talley is homeless. The wrong crowd, drugs, cost him his home. He sleeps in the basement of local churches in Tempe, Arizona. A local charity helped him and he got sober. Now works at the charity to save what little he can to fix his broken bike, the only transportation he has to look for full-time work. So that backpack, he wrestled. I went into survival mode for a moment, and actually a little bit longer than a moment, you know, thinking about the things I could do for myself. But his sense of honor led him to what he had to do. It it's, wasn't easy, but I knew it was the right thing to do. Uh, I beat myself up pretty hard for even thinking I would spend one dime of a person's money. Dave asked his boss at the charity to help him track down the owner, who turned out to be a college student, taking the money on his way to buy a car. One week later, Dave and the college student had a reunion. Brian, who got his money back, was so moved he decided to pay it forward. If people look into their local community outreach programs, it's surprising how much is going on. I'm definitely planning to volunteer with it. And when word got out around town, Dave's integrity awakened the kindness of strangers. A man just walked in and handed me an envelope and opened up the envelope and $100 in there. I just can't believe all this is going on. And not just from Arizona, from Seattle, Ohio, Dallas, Tennessee, enough donations to fix that bike for the man who reminds us you never know what's in somebody's heart. My time being on the streets, I have met some of the most intelligent people that just made bad choices. They're just everyday people that have a different way of life right now. And so we choose Dave Talley, who says he wants to use some of the donations to fix his teeth, that he used to smile a lot. We hope he will again. <laughs> Great story. Dave Talley chose him because what did he do? He ran his test, or that choice, through the uh, integrity test. So, again, number one test is the ideal test. Does it line up with God's word? Two, the integrity test, what I want everybody to know. Thirdly, the improvement test. Number three, Will it make me a better person? Again, not every choice is right or wrong, but it's a choice between good and best. A lot of the decisions we make in our life are morally neutral, so we need the improvement test. Will this make me a better person or will it hinder me? And 
I find myself personally, the hardest time to make those choices is when I'm tired. When the day's done, I'm spent, everything's given out, and you're just, you've worked a long day, maybe you put in a 12 or 14 hour day, or even an 8, 10 hour day, and you're just wrung out, and you just feel like squandering time, or just kind of choosing easy or good over best. Again, we want to run it through the grid. Will this improve me? Is this the best thing for me to do? Not just good. Is it the best thing for me to do? Why are we making these choices? Because our destiny is connected with the choices we make. And sometimes the most important choices we make are when we're tired. So again, we prepare ourselves. Good choices come under preparation. You know when you're tired. You know when you're wore out. You know when you're vulnerable. When are you vulnerable? When do you typically make dumb choices? You think about it beforehand. You pray about it beforehand. God, I know when I'm in this place, I'm in a vulnerable place. So prepare yourself beforehand so you don't make the wrong choice at those moments. Go in it prepared. One of the most important things we have to do is choose our time wisely. You only get so many hours a day. Uh, Obviously, you made a choice to come to church today. Uh, Good choice. Would you look at your neighbor and say, you made a good choice? (laughs) Some of you weren't so sure. I'm just encouraging you. It was a good choice. <laughs> Again, you don't have to understand God to enjoy his benefits. We're believing you're going to benefit this week from those who are planted in God's house flourish. But time's important. And you've been given so many minutes, hours a day to use it wisely. This test is, will this, what I'm doing with my time right now, make me a better person? Here's another video clip to drive the point home that will help us remember test number three. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, 60 second spot on time. Can I have a clock in the corner? It's there. Thank you. Roll them. Rolling. Action. Okay, here's the deal. We all know that life is busy. There aren't enough hours in the day to do all the things that we want and need to do. In fact, you're probably thinking of all the things you need to do next week right now, wondering how you're going to squeeze it all in. But the fact is, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter how much is on your plate, we all have the same gift of 24 hours each day. 24 hours, 1,440 minutes, 86,400 seconds. All the money in the world won't let you buy one single second more than the next guy. And once that second is gone, it's gone forever. Look, there goes one right now. Another one, gone. You'd think that we would judiciously use such a limited and valuable gift. You'd think that we would choose wisely how to spend, no, invest our time. But do we? Really? I mean, after taking the time for eating and sleeping and all the other basic necessities, do we really use this gift the way we should? Think of all the great things you could do in 24 hours, all the lives you could touch, all the significant changes that could be made in your life and others. The fact is, you could actually make a difference in this world in 24 hours, or not. So, how are you investing your time? How are you investing your time? That's a good punch, that little video. So that's, what's that? that's the improvement test. What I'm doing right now, the choice I'm making, how to spend my time, will this make me a better person? One was the ideal test. Does it line up with God's word? Two was this integrity test. But I want everybody to know. Thirdly, improvement test. Will it make me a better person? Fourthly, the independence test. Would it become addicting? There's over 2,000 classified addictions. And Paul said this, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Whatever dominates your life is your God. What dominates your life? What's wrestling with you to be number one in your life instead of being the Lord being number one? How would I tell? One way to tell is when you're totally relaxed, when everything's just kind of 
<sighs> you're just relaxing and just kind of chilling out. What comes to your mind? Where do you go? Where do you gravitate to? Where do you slip over to? That's often a clue of what's trying to dominate your life. Oh, I just want to relax. I need to get a drink. I just relax. I need to do this, do that. May or not be, but that can often be a clue of what's trying to dominate your life. And then you have to run it through this independence test. Could this become addictive? You want to be careful about it because it takes us into the ditch. Uses our time, uses our energy, uses what God's given to us, and it prevents us from finding the destiny, fulfilling the purpose that God has for our life. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, I can do anything I want if, if is underlined or bolded for you, Christ has said no. But some of the things aren't good for me. Even if I'm allowed to do them, Paul says, I'll refuse to if I think they might get such a grip on me that I can't easily stop when I want to. So we have to run it through this test. Now, again, it might be different for you than for another person. So be careful how you judge the next person. But for yourself, you have to run it through this test. Will this become addicting for me and steal the destiny, the purpose that God has for my life? Again, choice, not chance, determines our destiny. Number five, the last one, is simply this. The influence test, will it harm other people? Your family, your loved ones, those close to you, other people in your life, is this going to harm them? Romans chapter 14, verse 12 to 13, Paul says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. I, David Coop, have to stand before God and give an account. Steve has to stand before God and give an account. His wife won't be there, just himself, give an account. Dan have to stand before God Give an account. Diane will be there. He has to stand before God. Give an account. Eric has to stand before God. Give an account. Jen has to stand before God. Give an account. Peter has to stand before God. Give an account. June has to stand before God. Give an account. Each one. Give an account. What, what will I have to account for? What, what will be asked of me? Will my mom be there? No. Will your dad be there? No. Will my spouse? No. My pastor? No. My life group leader? No. You. Did you accomplish the purpose God put in your heart? That's why we're doing this series. That when you stand before God, you'll look back and say, I made the choices the best I could, God, to do what you've called me to do. Let's read on. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. It says, try to live. We're not perfect, but let's do our best, right? Let's try to live in such a way, here it comes, that you'll never make your brother stumble by letting him see you do something he thinks is wrong. It sounds like we're going to give an account that's not just about us, that if the way we lived caused somebody else to stumble and fall, God has a problem with that. It may not be wrong for you. Your conscience may not be wrong with it. But if it causes somebody else to fall, then the Bible says, then don't do it. Don't cause somebody else to stumble. Romans 15, 1 to 2 of the Living Bible says, even if we believe that it makes no difference to the Lord whether we do these things, still we cannot just go ahead and do them to please ourselves because it's not about us. We must bear the burden of being considerate of the doubts and fears of others. So let me give you an example. How do, what does this actually mean? On our staff, we have a number of pastors, 
as pastors, we make a choice not to drink alcohol, totally abstain from alcohol. Why? Because one out of nine people struggle with alcoholism. That's a stat. That's a known proven fact. So in our room here this morning, there could be maybe 50 people that struggle with it. Count down nine people in a row, and one of the nine is likely struggling with it. So if we're in a restaurant or if we're at a place and we're having a glass of wine or a drink, a beer or something, that could cause that other person to say, well, the pastor did it, so it's okay. They're struggling with it, and they stumble because of it, and it becomes addictive for them. So for us, we make a choice. I choose not to do it. I, in essence, what I'm doing is I'm limiting my freedom so I don't hurt somebody else. It's a choice. I'm running it through this grid because I want to make sure I don't cause somebody else to stumble. Next Sunday is communion. In our communion cup, we don't have wine. We have grape juice. Why do we have grape juice instead of wine? Because I don't want anybody to stumble. I don't want to serve as somebody here, and that would be enough to trigger an appetite of something that they put aside. They've been in AA for years. Now I came to church, I had a glass of wine, and it triggered. He said, that sounds, sounds very minute, but it's easy to fix. We just serve grape juice. It does the same thing. So we make a choice. We run it through this grid. Now, there'll be things that you have to do. You run through. I have to make a choice not to do this. One of my kids once asked me, he said, Dad, you know, I went over their place, their place, and why, why don't we have a glass of wine before our meal? And I explained this, and they still weren't quite getting it. And so I said, you know, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a dispute in our home because your mother or I were under the influence? No. Did you ever have to wonder if your dad would come home drunk? No. Did you ever see us putting a lot of money into that? No. Did you ever have to worry about that being a factor in the health of our home? No. Were you okay with that? Are you glad that it was that way? Yeah. Well, that's why we did it. Now, again, that's for us. But for you, it may be different. But you have to run it through the grid. You have to say, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm not just living for myself. The choices I make are influencing other people. That's so quiet in here all of a sudden. You could go to a movie, for example, that has shooting in it. And it wouldn't bother you. But somebody in your group, it would send them into nightmares. And it's okay for you to go to the movie. You, it doesn't bother you. You can see somebody shot in a movie and it doesn't even phase you. But for that next person, it would bother them. What do you have to do? You have to curb your freedom and say, I am not going to go to that movie because I know that's going to harass their mind if I go there. So we're going to go see something else. That's how you make choices so you help other people through the journey of life. Does that make sense? All right. If there's no clear right or wrong answer, ask yourself, how does this action affect others? Well, how will it affect my children? I want to wrap up by just telling you a little story about a gal by the name of Casey. Casey made a choice. She made a prepared choice. She was prepared. And there's a poem written about her. It's called, She Said Yes. Casey died in Columbine, April 1999. Teenage guys came into the trench coat. They asked her a question. Do you believe in God? And she said, 
with a gun pointed at her, she made a choice. Like Esther, she was prepared for her choice. She said, yes. 11-year-old wrote this poem about Casey. That Tuesday in April of 1999 was an ordinary day just seeming to be fine. Getting out of bed before school that day was a small battle, as Casey's mother would say. Until that moment in the library when that simple question was asked, for Casey's fateful yes was hardly a task. She fought a hard battle between right and wrong, but that day in the library her Christianity was strong. For believing in Christ, two teenage boys took her life, who, unlike Casey, were conflicted with internal strife. So we remember her to this day, an extraordinary girl whose answer of yes took her out of this world. As sad as it made those of us left behind, her eternal life in heaven is what we all hope to find. I wonder if you said yes to that most important question in your life. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to download free notes from this message or find out more information about Pastor Dave Coop, then we invite you to visit our website at www.coastalchurch.org.